and it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. Today, Pastor Elliot preaches from Jonah chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. Do we fear God enough to obey Him? And now, with more from God's Word, here's Pastor Robert Elliot. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. That's just like today. We have designer idols today in America. The person you meet in one place will have his own idol or her own idol, and the person you meet somewhere else will have an entirely different idol. We have those without Christ in America have their own idols. Each has their own tailor-made idol. They make an idol for themselves that suits them, that fits their lifestyle, that brings them a pseudo-phony peace and meaning. And everything old is new. Everything new is old. And these sailors became so afraid that every one of them cried to his God. Well, that wasn't all. They were so scared they were ready to throw their prophets for the journey to Tarshish into the sea as well. All that cargo they were being paid to ship from Joppa to Tarshish, they threw it overboard. They didn't care about making any money. They were, they were just trying to save their own lives. And so they throw the cargo overboard, which tells us that not only does our sin exact a cost for us, but often our sin exacts a cost for the people who are around us. These sailors, who didn't even know Jonah before he got on board, they lost some of their livelihood when they had to throw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below, going down to be away from God's will, had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. How does that happen? (laughs) How are you in the Mediterranean Sea in a storm so violent that it's going to break up a ship and sailors who know about sailing are terrified for their lives. They're probably yelling at each other through the storm. They're throwing the cargo over the ship, begging their idols to save their lives. And God's man is in the bottom of the ship sleeping? How does that happen? Could it be Psalm 6-6? Could it be that the reason this disobedient prophet could sleep in all that commotion and violent storm, could it be Psalm 6-6? The psalmist David says there, I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. Could it be that Jonah was able to sleep because he was so exhausted? He was so exhausted because night after night he'd been fighting the God's will for his life. He'd been crying tears, flooding his pillow. Could it be he was so sleep deprived, so exhausted from disobeying God that he actually could sleep through that storm? I don't know. But the sailors were amazed too. Verse six, so the captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up. Again, Doing God's will in this chapter is moving up, not down. Get up. Call on your God. 
We've all called on our gods and nothing's changing. You call on your God. Captain assumed everybody has their own designer idol. You call on yours. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we'll not perish. I guess the captain had concluded by this point in the story that all of their gods didn't care. They weren't concerned. But maybe Jonah's God would be concerned. So call on your God, Jonah. Maybe he'll be concerned so we don't die. Verse 7. And each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. You see, these pagans, these idol worshipers realized that what was happening in the Mediterranean that day or night was not coincidence. It was punishment. They understood that somebody had done something so wrong that one of the gods was punishing the ship and they were going to die. They cast lots. There were many different ways, I suppose, to cast lots, but the one I'm familiar with was like marbles. They'd have marbles that were the same color with one that was not the same color, and they would say a name of the crew member and do something with it in a bag or whatever, and they would try to see by casting lots whose responsibility it was that they were being punished. And God allowed the casting of the lots to fall on Jonah because God in mercy didn't want to kill the sailors, didn't want to kill Jonah either. So God allowed the casting of the lots to point out accurately who was the problem. Verse 7, the end of the verse, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? You see, they assumed that somebody that Jonah knew was the reason why God was, the gods were punishing him. They thought that maybe if Jonah divulged who he knew was the problem to the gods, that that could solve the storm problem. They said to him, verse 8, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? Then they get some rapid fire questions. They want to get a bio on this guy that's sleeping in the storm. That the lots have said he's the problem or he knows who's the problem. And they start asking him questions because remember, they didn't know him before he got on the ship. He paid the fare. He was a passenger going with cargo that they as professional sailors were taking to Tarshish. They had no idea who the guy was. But they wanted to find out now. Tell us, on whose account has this calamity struck us? And what is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And from what people are you? Boom, boom, boom. Tell us who you are. It's a life and death issue. And this is one of the most ironic and crazy verses of Scripture. And he, Jonah, said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The problem was Jonah didn't fear that creator God enough to obey him. Do we ever fall in that category? We know all about God. The Bible tells us he's creator and redeemer, healer, etc. But is our knowledge of God ever surpassed by our disobedience to him? It's crazy that Jonah could tell these pagans that I'm a Jew and I fear and I reverence the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then why aren't you obeying him? Why are you trying to go 2,000 miles northwest when he's clearly told you to go 500 miles northeast? True reverence for God 
means true obedience to God even if we're scared. Even if we don't want to do what God wants us to do. Verse 9, and he said, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. (laughs) Now they're even more frightened. Because he's saying that his God is not just a God of the sea, is not just a God of money, is not just a God of other little puny things, slivers of the same pie. He's saying that his God is over everything. His God is the creator of the sea and of the dry land. They're getting the picture that this guy, his God is causing this storm that's threatening their lives. And so they become even more frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Somewhere in the account, he said, I'm a Hebrew. My God is the God of creating the the sea and the dry land. And by the way, I'm running away from him. Just imagine, they said, great, terrific. Verse 10, and then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? They assumed that Jonah would know what had to be done. And turns out he did. Verse 11, so they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. It had started out being so stormy that it threatened the ship being broken up. But by this point, that storm was escalating. They said, what do we need to do to you to solve this problem? And Jonah knew. And he said to them, verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And now, today's personal God story. Good morning. At the age of 14, while attending a gospel meeting, I was confronted with the need to surrender my life to Jesus. Being brought up in a Christian home with 12 siblings, I knew the gospel path to salvation, but had not embraced this yet. So that night at the meeting, I opened my heart to Jesus, receiving him into my heart and life. During my walk with the Lord, I have had such wonderful opportunities to serve him. At age 25, the Billy Graham Association had a crusade in Nassau, where I served as the youth chairman. At that time, I was attending Central Baptist Church, and getting to know the youth at Calvary Bible, and thus I started to attend Calvary Bible Church. Calvary Bible then became my place of worship. I served as Sunday school superintendent at Calvary in the teen department for 25 years, and I went on to the junior department after that for 10 years. During this time, I saw many young people put their trust in Jesus. I have had the joy of being a Gideon for over 50 years distributing God's Word in the Bahamas. God has blessed me over the past years in such a tremendous way. To God be the glory. There is such joy and peace having Jesus in your life as Savior, Counselor, and Guide. God has blessed my wife Virginia and I with three children with three 
children, Andrew, Clint, and Tiffany. We have five grandkids, four girls, and one son, grandson, all of which have embraced Jesus in their life and have been baptized. God is so good. I recommend you seek and trust Him if you have not done so yet. What a beautiful life we can have on earth, knowing Him, and what a glorious future we can look forward to having in heaven. God bless. Today's Help for the Hearing segment is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church's Christian Counseling Center. The center is located at 58 Collins Avenue, Nassau, Bahamas. If you would like an appointment or more information, dial 323-7000. That's 323-7000. Or email them at cccbahamas at gmail.com. And now, Pastor Robert Elliott. Well, I'm back in the studio with professional Christian counselors, Pastor Frederick Arnett and his dear wife, Helen Arnett. And we're going to go on talking to each other about some counseling matters. And there's a sense in which some of the ideal outcome is a, a point in time, a decision that stands for all time. But part of a good outcome also is understanding that it's a process. Yes. Yeah, it is a process. I, I, I like to emphasize that counseling is a process. It's no quick fix. It isn't that you have a, you swallow a pill and everything just happens magical. Yes. A lot of people are looking for these quick fix or the holy zap, but it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. It's a process we go through. And believe me, if you are willing to do the work, you might not see changes in your significant person, whether it's a spouse or your child, but the change will begin in you. Mm -hmm. that I'm going to look within, work on myself, then that change can impact the entire environment. And it, it really reminds me of uh, when CNN has a program that it says, then and now, and they interview Joycelyn Elders, who was the... Um, Surgeon General in the Clinton administration, and she was fired and very um, upset about it. And during this interview, she said, I came to Washington as prime steak. I'm leaving as low-grade hamburger. Hmm. And I feel like some of the people who come to the center, sometimes they're so battered and wounded, they feel like low-grade hamburger. Hmm. They leave feeling like prime steak. Right. Because Thanks to the Lord, weeks, yes. weeks, you know, of integrating biblical and psychological, they then take this on and own it and say, I want to change, I want to work on me, and then they begin to bloom. But yeah. it's a process. It is. Yes. It's not a quick yes. fix. Right. Like a wedding is a point-in-time decision, yes. but then you have a, a, a marriage yes. From, yes. that's a yes. process. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. That's good. Okay, yes. well, let's, let's go on to another question here. Um, relative to recovery through and after counseling, I wonder if you could comment on a few things. Prayer, family and church family love and support, accountability, scripture, honesty with self and with others, taking responsibility, and true versus false guilt. There's quite a lot of things there, but do these things come to bear in someone's recovery? I would say yes, definitely. 
for me, as I mentioned already, prayer is most important to me uh, during my counseling with clients that comes to me. Prayer, I believe, is the key to counseling, especially those who are truly hurting. If you can get them to a place where they recognize that they need the Lord and they are willing to take that step, I dare say that the majority of those who have gone away feeling not only as prime stake, but they were able to take on a lot. It was because they made a decision and they had the opportunity to pray and practice and believe in what God's word says. So prayer for me is important. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us. And that's what I do. And uh, I believe with all my heart that that's something that is very important. But not one of the things that stands out to me, and I'm talking about believers now who come to us and they are professing believers, how many couples will come to us and they will tell you, we don't pray together mm -hmm. as a couple. And you ask why, and it's amazing, but it's always a simple reason. They don't want their spouse to know what they're saying to the Lord. Really? I say, you don't even have to speak those words. You, you can just think about it, but you can find so much to pray about as a couple. Yes. I mean, you have families, you could pray about your own problems. Yes. Even if you're accusing your husband or you're accusing your wife. Maybe if you pray about it, you'll find that half of the problem is you and not your husband or mm -hmm. your wife. Yes, indeed. So I think praying together is a good place to start. Yes, the essentiality of prayer is for the counselor as much as it is for the counselee, right? That's for sure. Yeah. Yes. I think it's good when people have family support because we find that when they can honestly say, I'm seeking help, and a family member can, or the family as a whole can say, I'm behind you, I'm willing to go with you or help defray the costs. It brings value for the person mm -hmm. because they feel like somebody cares enough to invest in me as an individual. And even a church can invest in their parishioner. You know, they're struggling with issues. If you feel um, you can't handle it in the church as a pastor, you don't have that ability or that area of study as they refer them out rather than having the person struggle on their own or feel lonely. You know, Billy Graham's daughter has a book she's wrote and she says in many church pews, it's a lonely heart. And it's because we in community don't really try to know each other. Yes. And try to really reach out and find out. We just see the person on Sunday or Wednesday or whatever, and we don't really reach out. So I think this family support, because I've, I've had even um, persons in the workplace have said, come to the center. I've gone to the center. I've found it has helped me. And some of the supervisors will bring their staff there. Uh -huh. And they would even invest in paying for the first two sessions and then say, okay, you try and invest in your development. So I think it's important to have that support from the church from the family or whoever your friend is. And now, today's personal God story. Good morning. I grew up in a family that was quite large. 
there were seven boys, including me, and five sisters. It was always quite an interesting and joyful time at Christmas. There were so, so many gifts that uh, we had to be in one room and the gifts were in an, another. All of the 12 of mother's and dad's children have given their hearts to the Lord and serving him. It's such a joy to be from a large family. You get to know all of their children and their grandchildren, and you get to share many, many old time stories and memories, which is always a delight. My oldest sister it will be 94 this year, and my youngest uh, brother would be 68 this year. The Lord is so good to us, and we know that one day we shall all be together in heaven. There have been three of the siblings that's gone on to be with the Lord, and that is a great joy to know one day we'll see them again in heaven. God bless. And now, the Bible's answers to your questions. Here's a question from Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, which reads, Jesus' words, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And so the question based on Matthew 25, verse 41 is this, do wicked unbelievers experience everlasting torment in a fiery hell, or are they annihilated and merely pass out of existence? Answer, traditionally Christians have held to the view that those who have rejected Christ suffer the pains of an everlasting fiery hell. But there have arisen some among the evangelical Christians who argue that these traditional views are found only on early Greek philosophy and that the Bible texts are capable of a differing interpretation. Well, let's say this. There are two texts of Scripture that suggest that hell involves everlasting punishment. Let me say there's more than two, but let's just focus on two. Matthew 25, verse 46, sums up the judgment on the sheep and the goats with the words, quote, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, end of quote. The same word in the Greek for eternal is used to describe the punishment of the wicked and also the blessing of the righteous. Whatever we say about the duration of eternal life for believers must also be said about the eternal punishment for unbelievers. Since life for believers is everlasting, John 10 verse 28, so must be the punishment for unbelievers. In a second Bible text, Revelation 20 verse 10, John describes those in the lake of fire being, quote, tormented day and night forever and ever, end of quote. The expression day and night is used in Revelation to express the concept of forever, 
It's that simple. The lake of fire is described in Revelation 19 and verse 20 as a place that, quote, burns with brimstone, end quote. The saddest verse in the Bible has John declaring that anyone whose name is not written in the book of life is, quote, thrown into the lake of fire, end of quote. That's Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. The doctrine of eternal punishment for those who have rejected Christ appears to be thoroughly, completely, accurately biblical. It's what the Bible teaches. This is not an easy teaching or one that brings us any joy, but the unpleasantness of a doctrine should not cause us to deny biblical truth. Teaching on eternal damnation may serve as a motivation for evangelism and an encouragement toward repentance and belief. I pray that it will affect that indeed. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior.